On October 14, 2006, Private Jess LaRochelle of the 1st Royal Canadian Regiment Battle Group was manning an observation post when it was destroyed by an enemy rocket in Pashmool, Afghanistan. Although he was alone, severely injured, and under sustained enemy fire in an exposed position at the ruined observation post, he aggressively provided covering fire over the otherwise undefended flank of his company's position. While two members of the personnel were killed and three others were wounded in the initial attack, Private Lash Shirell's heroic actions permitted the remainder of the company to defend their battle positions and to successfully fend off the sustained attack of more than 20 insurgents. His valiant conduct saved the lives of many members of his company. Welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Member of Parliament Aaron O'Toole, and that is the citation from the Governor General of Canada in the awarding of the Star of Military Valor to Private Jess Randall La Rochelle. Heroic valor, and that Star of Military Valor, Canada's second highest decoration for bravery, was awarded on March 14th. 2007. It doesn't tell the whole story. That rocket-propelled grenade broke La Rochelle's back. It fractured two neck vertebrae. It blew out one of his eardrums. It detached his right retina. And not just 20 insurgents, some reports say 40 insurgents, 40 members of the Taliban, were pinning down his observation post. Severely injured, this army private defended his position, showed heroic conduct under extreme battle conditions, and saved lives. Was that worthy of the Victoria Cross, Canada's highest decoration for valor in the face of the enemy, something that Canada has not awarded since August of 1945, with the last VC from World War II with the posthumous award to Lieutenant Robert Hampton Gray. That's what we're going to be discussing today. Can we look back and recognize valor? Can we correct the historic record? Does the heroic efforts of a Canadian merit recognition, merit higher recognition for their valor in the presence of the enemy? And for this discussion, I'm joined by one of Canada's most esteemed historians, someone that tackles issues that need a second look and is an expert at doing that. David O'Keefe studied at Concordia, McGill, and the University of Ottawa before becoming a professor at Marianopolis College in Westmount, Quebec. And he knows his subject matter firsthand as someone that served as an infantry officer with the Royal Highland Regiment, the esteemed Black Watch of Canada, and did work on the history of that regiment, along with the Royal Canadian Navy, cited in numerous defense and other articles, he really grew to prominence with his second look at the Dieppe raid, something we're honoring a, a, an anniversary of this year. His book, One Day in August, The Untold Story Behind Canada's Tragedy at Dieppe, re-examined the disastrous raid at Dieppe, France, taking into account recently uncovered evidence that allowed us to look back at this. He's also looked at Camp X. He's looked at many issues and was even the host of the television series War Junk for History Television. I'm really fortunate to be joined today by a great patriotic Canadian. Welcome to the Blue Skies podcast, David O'Keefe. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm going to start right where we should. You heard me off the top, Professor. I read a battle citation for Jess LaRochelle. Does such courage under fire amid a ferocious battle of a seriously wounded infantry member like Jess LaRochelle, did that citation sound a lot like a Victoria Cross citation in your experience? Well, having... Having had the pleasure of reading many, many over the years, I could tell you that when you started reading it, that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, Not just for the individual heroism displayed, but some of the other boxes that they like to have checked. One of them 
was that if I'm not mistaken, this led to the successful conclusion of the operation, holding off the Taliban, attempting to flank the position, and then holding on to that position is one of the requisites that they put out in the past when it comes to the Victoria Cross. Uh, um, but again, as I'm sure you and I will talk about this afternoon, um, the process is not the smoothest process, and it hasn't been. And I think that's part and parcel of why now all these years later we you know we we have this um perhaps a sense of urgency when it comes to Jess Larochelle, um a sense of urgency to go back and take a look at that process again to see if it's been fair over the years and what is the process obviously the only people who are aware of the heroic actions of Jess Larochelle are the people in his unit so what walk us through what normally happens for the type of bravery decoration like this. This would be nominated at some point in the chain of command and rise up through that chain of command and then off to the the D&D headquarters and then the Chancellor of Honours. What is the normal process here? Well, from my understanding, I mean, first of all, it has to be witnessed. It's not something like, although we had issues in the First World War, we started to tighten up the process in the Second World War. Of course, one of the most controversial ones was uh, Billy Bishop, who flew back and reported on his own exploits without any witnesses whatsoever. And of course, he was given the Victoria Cross, and that has been highly controversial ever since, more because of the process. Um, during the Second World War, we had to then witness, or at least it had to be witnessed, it had to be corroborated, then it worked its way up the chain of command. But of course, it was also subject to the idiosyncrasies of the various commanders as it went up. And that can also be problematic um, because there's a whole bunch of different influences that can come in. It could be a personal influence. It could be race. It could be religion. It could be the fact that you're an NCO and not an officer. The fact that, you know, it could be um, you're not from the right regiment or perhaps one regiment that has been decorated too much. There was also the fact that we um, that the award was given out on a um, uh, on a quota basis like the rest of them. Uh, in other words, there was X amount put on the shelf at the beginning of a conflict, and by the end, you were supposed to get rid of them. So, you know, at the beginning, they were given out thinking that the war, uh, in a, I won't say it's easy, it's never easy giving out a Victoria Cross, um, but it was easier, if you will, relatively speaking, in the beginning of the war, figuring the war would be over quickly, and then it kind of dries up in the middle, and then at the end, they're basically taking them off the shelves and giving them to um, to people who are certainly deserving of it, but perhaps would not have got them in the middle of the war just simply because, you know, they were holding on to them. Yes, you and I have talked about this, that yeah. they're almost held up against an impossible standard to meet, particularly at the beginning or the outset uh, of a conflict and, and near the end when other things factor in uh, quotas, recruitment, other things, it seems like there's a lesser standard. Um, in this case with La Rochelle, our first two years uh, of the mission or so, 03 to 05 or so was in Kabul. But when the Kandahar mission started, uh, 05, 06, we saw Operation Medusa, uh, Nicola Goddard, our, our first woman to die in, in combat, was in the spring of 2006. La Rochelle's engagement was in the fall of 2006. It was still kind of earlier in the war fighting part of Afghanistan. But with all the hallmarks, uh, a severely injured soldier, mm -hmm. uh, heroics under fire from the enemy, saving lives of the compatriot and and preventing the loss of, of a further life in a, in a horrendous engagement. All the hallmarks are there, but it's early on. So maybe people are saying maybe something will be even bigger in the future. Do, yeah. do you think that factors into why um, it went through the, 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 the chain of command and it became a star of military valor, something still incredibly uh, 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 inspiring and, and demonstrating the highest levels of courageous? but not a Victoria Cross. Do you think that factored into the reluctance to award it? 
I, I certainly think it's fair to say preponderance of evidence certainly uh, certainly makes it seem that way. Um, you know, I've seen it, it, similar things during the Second World War. But again, the idea is to step back and just take a look at the evidence. Don't take a look at what was awarded, what should have been. Just take a look at the evidence and then decide whether this was worthy of a Victoria Cross. And I would assume it was. And remember... That, you know, we hadn't, as you said in the opening, uh, Canada had not awarded a Victoria Cross since August of 1945. Um, and unlike the Americans who have been in other conflicts and the, and the Brits who have been in other conflicts and have given them out on a fairly regular basis in the last 80 years, it seems that we in Canada have perhaps lost touch with what this is all about and and how one actually genuinely earns one. And I say earns one. I've never been a big fan of the term winner, um, not a contest. And it's never something that anybody should actually be out trying to do is earn, you know, a Victoria Cross. It usually comes as a byproduct, like I would argue with Lavershelle of this. But you know, we, as you said, we were talking before, and I think it's kind of like we've lost sight of this. We've lost sight of where either where the bar should be or how to get to the bar. And maybe that's probably the better way of putting it. It's kind of like, you know, if you take a, let's do a pedestrian thing for a second. Let's take a look at sports. Take a look at the halls of fame, right? Hall of Fame in hockey, Hall of Fame in baseball in the United States. It would be like saying that nobody can get into the Hall of Fame in Canada for hockey unless you're better than Wayne Gretzky. That's what uh, the way we look at the Victoria Cross now. It's absolutely untouchable. It's and I get the impression that there was a lot of that that was framing the context of the decision for La Rochelle. In other words, it is early. There must be something that's even better that's coming. Not realizing that if you just do a comparable analysis right across World War One, World War Two, and other conflicts, that the evidence. I would argue, sustains any type of attempt to uh, award him the Victoria Cross. I think it's there. I think it checks all the boxes. Well, and what's interesting, as you've said, nothing's been awarded since 1945. And the longer it goes, um, it, it, it seems to be an even higher summit of, of circumstance heroics to be able to, to finally decorate someone with that distinction um you've used the 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 hall of fame analogy yeah it would be a pretty long drought for the hall of fame in hockey in toronto or cooperstown for for baseball if if there wasn't that um and more importantly robert hampton gray was awarded a vc under the original british honors system that canada adopted with the victoria cross um, but in 1972, a Trudeau, not the current one, but his father, um, revamped the, the Canadian honours system. And the Victoria Cross, as of the mid-70s, was a distinctive Canadian decoration. Yet this distinctive Canadian process has never awarded a Victoria Cross. Do you think that has added to the complexity here? I think it has. I mean, it, it's just this... <sighs> perhaps the dearth of comparables in our present day. Also, too, you have to take a look at the size of the Canadian Armed Forces. It's a very small outfit compared to the other armies in the world. The fact that we have not been, thankfully, engaged in numerous conflicts over the 80-year period, at least not compared to the Americans and the Brits, I think that actually plays a large role in it. Um, we just don't perhaps really have a handle on the nuance of it anymore the way we used to. But remember, it also evolves. I mean, when we were giving out Victoria Crosses in the First World War, I mentioned Billy Bishop before, you know, somebody could get up in an aircraft, fly out, come back and tell a story that was completely, you know, lacking corroboration, and was given the Victoria Cross. Not to say what he claimed didn't happen, but there was no corroboration whatsoever. So the the appearance was that perhaps we were giving out the Victoria Cross a little too easily at world, in World War I for a whole bunch of political reasons. Um, and then in World War II, we started to tighten them up. We only had a few Victoria Crosses in, uh, in World War II, and then nothing since. So as a result, I think it's just this... Um, how do we put this or how should I put this? We, we seem to be our own worst enemy in this. We we've put the pedestal just 
you know, so far up. And I just don't think currently, unless we redress or address this again, I don't think there'll ever be another award recipient for the Victoria Cross. Um, I just can't see it based on, you know, on what somebody like Lavrochelle did. And there's been no living recipient of the Victoria Cross since the death of Smokey Smith in 2005. And as you said, thankfully, we haven't been in numerous conflicts since the Korean War, um, you know, particularly through the period of the 70s and 80s when we were involved in in Cold War operations and later into the 90s, into the Balkans and other, uh, other roles for the Canadian Armed Forces. But speak about your experience, you know, how important that uh, that special category of VC winners uh, can be, and, and particularly your experience at the Menon Gate, uh, yeah. running into a VC winner or recipient. Well, that was that was definitely one of the strangest things because, of course, you know, growing up, any of the surviving Victoria Cross recipients um, were much older, to say the least. Um, you know, most of them were senior citizens by the time that I started getting into military history. And of course, Smokey Smith lived until, well, I guess he was his late 90s. Um, and he was the last one. And because we haven't awarded one in almost, you know, 75, 80 years now, um, you don't see them walking around <laughs> that often or at all anymore except when i was at the men gate in belgium in Ypres, and we were doing war junk doing a show and um we went to the men gate ceremony which you do at eight o'clock every single night and when i turned around i went just turned around face to face into this gentleman who was probably about 10 years younger than me and we were both pretty tall i'm about six foot four he was about six foot four as well so we were kind of looking eye to eye and then I just stared down and he was dressed in civvies. He was dressed in a, and I'll never forget it. It was a dark brown tweed suit. And on the suit, nothing else was just his rack of medals. And there was the Victoria Cross staring at me right in the face. And I, I was absolutely stunned to see it. And I had to sort of blink twice to think, okay, are you, is this a replica? Are you wearing this? Like, who are you? <laughs> Finally, it was explained to me that no, that this was an Australian SAS member who had earned the Victoria Cross, um, either in Afghanistan or Iraq. Robert Smith, it was his last name. Um, and it was just amazing to see a Victoria Cross recipient in the flesh. And I, I, I tell you, it was, uh, I didn't get fanboy, but I wasn't that far off. I'll tell you that. Well, it is such a a unique honor and very rare. It, it would would have been, you know, very strange to see someone younger than you, uh, because we envisioned kind of Smokey Smith, the, the older veteran in the eighties and nineties, as the last living recipient. There's a famous story about William Hall, Canada's first black recipient of the VC, that he was spotted in a parade during the royal visit of of the king or perhaps the Prince of Wales. Because the the king noticed the VC hanging on this soldier, and he's known historically for having received a blue ribbon VC. In the early days, the army got crimson, the Navy got the blue ribbon, but the creation of the Air Force, they standardized it to the crimson. These are how unique and set apart. When I was Veterans Affairs Minister, I announced a monument to Canada's VC winners that was supposed to be uh, built here in Ottawa that was cancelled by the subsequent government. But I think these are touchstones for us to understand our our history. Hmm. But history should not be completely frozen in time, particularly if we become aware of other circumstances. And there's a remarkable initiative of, of veterans, of historical societies, regimental associations that have come together with an initiative, Valor in the Presence of the Enemy. Uh, Our mutual friend, Bruce Moncour, who -hmm. helps organize things for for Afghan veterans, is one of the driving forces here. Thousands of Canadians have been asking the question, why why can't we look back to see that that citation of Jess LaRochelle that was worthy of a Victoria Cross. And can we be mature enough as a country to recognize that? Uh, what were your thoughts with this grassroots initiative? 
Well, definitely. I mean, you're, you're certainly preaching to the choir here. Um, you know, as you know, history is never static. History is revisionist by nature. Um, so as a historian, I'm always interested in, in going back and really re-examining whatever it would be, especially when there's something that seems to be a bit off or perhaps not just. And that certainly was the case with La Rochelle. And I think the grassroots, you know, coming from, you know, people like Bruce and, and Valor in the presence of the enemy, I think is absolutely fantastic. The other thing too is i don't think anything should be sacrosanct here um we don't want to go back every single year and reopen but at the same time too there should be like is happening in the united states and is happening in great britain uh perhaps a standing committee or a committee of some sort to be able to examine because it's not just the men who weren't awarded men and women who weren't awarded in the current conflict but also if we go back you know um that there were people that were passed over for various awards, particularly the Victoria Cross, which they likely deserved, but they were passed over because of various, you know, discriminatory uh, attitudes or behaviors. And this is something that the United States and Great Britain are actually actively looking into right now. And I don't see any reason why we shouldn't do the same thing. Yeah. And, and you and I've discussed a couple of potential cases uh, in Canada alone. Uh, Mo Horowitz, of course, is one uh, a heroic set of circumstances, um, and and some questions on 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 his case. There there's several others in the Canadian context, and as you said, not just the Americans and and the British. Uh, just a few years ago, in 2020, Australia through the Queen awarded a VC to to Teddy Sheehan, a sailor from the Royal Australian Navy who died saving lives and defending his ship from the Armadale from Japanese attack, uh, went down with the ship, was mentioned in dispatches, which is one of Mm -hmm. only two posthumous awards, the VC or mentions in dispatches. Australia revisited it. They studied it. And in 2020, long after World War II, they awarded uh, the VC. Is this something that our allies are doing, but we seem just reluctant to ever use new information, uh, ever look back uh, to, to make sure we get it right, particularly when it's the highest form of, of valor there is? I think there's been a reticence without a doubt. I mean, I've you know, been in the military history community now for you know, professionally 25 years, and I've always heard that. I've always heard that, oh, we're, we're not going back. We're not going back. It's, it's set in stone. We move ahead. And I can understand that because, you know, in, in, in some cases, you'd probably be opening a Pandora's box where there would be never-ending arguments over various upgrades. But If you were, like our allies, to be able to put in a proper process, which was tightly controlled, that was, you know, devoid of partisanship on all levels, and I don't just mean politically, but all levels, and actually take a look at the evidence, plus the comparables right across the history of the Victoria Cross and other awards, then I see it very much being doable. But also, too, there's the cost and the price. And I think perhaps that might have been also something that was a bit of a deterrent over the years. Well, I think, yeah, I think there's, it's always more difficult to advocate for a change in process or the maturity to, to maybe admit that you didn't get everything right in the past. I often say it's better to add to the culture, not cancel culture. It's better to add more that were maybe overlooked, particularly when we have more information and I think there was a lot to, to learn. You've looked at, at this in the context of the Americans in the Medal of Honor, their highest uh, decoration. They, they've done it many times over generations. And uh, you've even learned a lot from one of their leading experts, who I think we're fortunate to have join us in the next segment of this podcast. Uh, speak a bit about that. Well, Ed Langdell is the gentleman that you're referring to. Ed is the chief historian at the brand new Medal of Honor Museum in Texas. And uh, he has been actively engaged in um, in monitoring and investigating some of these claims. And it's absolutely fascinating. But I think the key that we can learn from Ed, and we'll probably see this in the next segment, um, is that process. In other words, how difficult the process is, um, the, the pitfalls, the trap doors that we have to watch out for, etc. And, uh, you know, he certainly has the experience without a doubt. Well, this is an 
excellent opportunity to bring in a another guest to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. Welcome to the Blue Skies, Dr. Ed Langle. Pleased to be with you. Well, Dr. Ed Langle is the chief historian at the National Medal of Honor Museum in Arlington, Texas. He's the former senior director of programs for the National World War II Museums Institute for the Study of War and Democracy. He received his PhD from the University of Virginia and was a full professor and directed the Washington Papers Project for many years. He is someone that knows both the Victoria Cross and the honor system coming from the British heritage, now partially Canadian, but certainly the Medal of Honor process in the United States. And Ed, just before you joined, David and I had been talking about the case of Jess LaRochelle and just the reluctance for Canada to have a retroactive look to see whether we got the highest form of, of decoration for valor right. We've never really done that in Canada, but with the Medal of Honor, your highest distinction for courageousness and, and, and valor, it's quite regular for the U.S. to revisit this award. Take us through that. Well, we've been reviewing the Medal of Honor in a positive way in terms of looking for individuals who earned the Medal of Honor but were not immediately awarded it. We've been doing that since the 1990s, since the early 1990s. Uh, but there were earlier reviews. The Medal of Honor in the 19th century it was instituted during the Civil War. Uh, and up through the early 20th century was awarded very widely, much more easily than, than it is today. In fact, it's scandalous. We had, we had an expedition to Mexico and Veracruz in 1914, and there were 50-some medals of honor awarded for an action that had a few dozen casualties. So it, it was pretty ridiculous. That prompted a review in 1917, just as the United States enters World War I, to revoke, uh, to identify medals that they felt should, the army felt should have been remote, revoked. And so they revoked some 800 of those medals. Um, now, the, in fact, the first, the first attempts to bring medals back were reviews of those revocations. Mary Edwards Walker, who remains to date the only female Medal of Honor recipient, had initially received the Medal of Honor at the end of the Civil War. Her Medal of Honor was taken away in 1917 because she was a civilian. She was a civilian contractor and it didn't follow the, follow the right form. And in the 1970s, uh, that was reviewed and uh, President Jimmy Carter restored that medal posthumously. But we get into the modern era, really, of, of reviewing individuals who never had received the Medal of Honor in 1991 when uh, Freddie Stowers, who was a black soldier who served during World War One and clearly demonstrated tremendous heroism, he was killed in action in 1918, uh, was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. There have been other processes that that followed that, just to, to briefly mention them. From 92 to 97, there was a review of uh, African-Americans from World War II who had received the Distinguished Service Cross. During that war, no Blacks were awarded the Medal of Honor during World War I or World War II. So there was a new review that took place. In 97, seven of those men were awarded the, the Medal of Honor. Only one of them was still alive at, at that time. Uh, there was another review of Japanese-American World War II servicemen uh, that concluded in 2000, including Senator Daniel Inouye, received uh, afterwards the Medal of Honor. Uh, many of those, of course, were posthumous, and Inouye was not. Then from the 2000s, concluding in 2014, there was a review of Jewish and Hispanic service members. That's what's known in this country as the Valor 24 uh, those were 24 individuals, obviously, as the name would suggest, who received the Medal of Honor from President Obama. Uh, and then another, uh, Henry Johnson from World War I, got his in 2015. But we have a couple more ongoing. Uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has called for a new review as of, as of last year 
going back to World War II, Korean War, and the Vietnam War, again, looking at Blacks and Native Americans. But there's also a project underway right now, the World War I Valor Medals Review Project, that's looking again and more broadly. I have some involvement with that, with that uh, organization on the outside. Uh, they've identified over 200 prospective individuals who might be worthy of the Medal of Honor, but it's a long process. It's a long and complicated process. But you have a process nonetheless. And what I, I'm looking at that that bill here, House of Representative 2249, which if you look at the sponsors, there are Republican, Democrat, like in this age, it seems to be one of the few areas that can bring all sides of the political spectrum together to make sure that no matter how much time passes, valor is appropriately recognized. And in many of the cases, I've read a bit about the American experience and, and you know, revoking 800 medals. I know uh, there was one unit asked to guard the White House uh, during the Civil War, and they said, if you come, everyone will get a Medal of Honor. Uh, uh, yeah, Buffalo Bill got one. And and so there's been for over a century an, a, an ability to revisit, to make sure that it's not diluted by easy handouts when it was very political, but also to make sure as more information comes to light, that it's not diluted by bias or intolerance or systematic failures to recognize, as you said, Black, Japanese, Jewish, probably Indigenous. Um, And this is all based on new information. So this isn't identity politics. This is a proper study to make sure that the valor of someone serving their country, and in some cases dying serving their country, was not besmirched by attitudes of the day downgrading their recognition. Right. And and the standards are onerous. Not by any means does every individual who gets reviewed and reconsidered receive the Medal of Honor. And some of them have have become kind of a cause celeb. Uh, there's uh, Dory Miller, who was a sailor in World War II, a black sailor uh, who fought at Pearl Harbor, who was reviewed. Uh, he was given the Navy Cross after the action. He was reviewed and his Medal of Honor was denied. But there are still uh, people who say it should be reviewed yet again. And so there are, there are sometimes pressure I don't know if pressure groups is the right is the right word, but there are individuals who form around a certain cause or a certain individual, and they'll keep fighting for it uh, and try to get them recognized. And it can take decades. Mm-hmm. And but the process, um, we talked about the World War One Valor Recognition uh, Initiative from Congress. Um, is that how all of them? like the Valor 24 initiative you've taken us through, did they all have an origin in terms of the legislature asking for certain cases to be reviewed? And then that was then passed and sent to a body. And does, does this revisiting body constantly exist? And, and where, where is it resident? Is it within DOD? Is it, is it distinct? Take us through how these come up from just a, a grassroots initiative through to being actually actioned? Yes, well, usually it starts with individuals or groups lobbying Congress to officially order a review. Now, the review can be a review of groups of people from a particular conflict or group of conflicts. It can be a review of people of different ethnicities or religions, or it can be a review of an individual. So I take a a case in point that illustrates the process. Uh, Two days ago, sadly, we lost Medal of Honor recipient John Canley from the Vietnam War, who who passed away. Um, He was a wonderful man. He was a gunnery sergeant, fought in the Battle of Way City in 1968, showed tremendous bravery. Uh, He was black, but there was no suggestion that he was denied the medal because of racism. He received, he was a Marine. He received the Navy cross uh, because the Marines give Navy medals. Uh, After the battle, he survived um, obviously. And the problem with him was that almost all of the men who were with him were killed. 
who witnessed his action and others were enlisted men who weren't asked and they want they went home they went to their various places they always remembered him and also even for the navy cross the paper some paperwork got lost some paperwork got stuck in the military bureaucracy there were other issues so it kind of fizzled so in the early 2000s at veterans reunion some of the guys the enlisted guys who had fought with canley they said, oh, you remember you remember Gunny Canley? He was amazing. He saved all of our, our lives. And, and they said, you mean he hasn't gotten the Medal of Honor? So they formed uh, a, uh, a coalition. They called it Operation Gunny. And it took him 13 years to get Congress to take up his cause specifically to order a review of the evidence for whether he, he had earned the Medal of Honor. Now, in his case, he, he fits the bill of new evidence being provided. There has to be new evidence that you can either show was not it was available but was not considered at the time, or new witnesses step forward. <clears throat> that was also the case with Roy Benavides, the only guy who Reagan gave a Medal of Honor to. They found a witness in Fiji. He was living in Fiji who had seen what he did. And stepped forward. So the the process goes to the DOD. It's reviewed by a sequestered panel uh, that comes from service branches. They will have historians do the research, in-depth research. They don't get to make the decision, but they present a packet, a research packet that the panel then reviews and then makes a recommendation to Congress. Congress will then make a recommendation to the president, and the president will ultimately decide when, if ever, the Medal of Honor gets awarded. There were two, two Medals of Honor were recommended to the president, um, I think President George W. Bush, many years ago from the Civil War that they be upgraded to Medals of Honor, and they still have not been awarded. So... Sometimes there can be hangups in the process for very various reasons, but there is a process. You're right about that. And and it seems like the grassroots goes the will of the people through their their legislative arm, and and then it gets revisited and properly done. So there is a process. David and I were talking um, a little bit before Ed on how, in the case of of Private La Rochelle, and in previous conflicts. Often, if there was tremendous valor demonstrated early in a conflict, there wasn't almost the comparator for that war or battle yet to, to say this was worthy of our highest decoration. Um, did that happen? Like you talked about Operation Gunny. I, lo I love that. Is that the case that in the beginning of the Vietnam War, for example, there may have been more uh, awarded versus later in the conflict or less rewarded awarded versus towards the end? Um, or is it all a case of new evidence, new witnesses uh, coming in and writing the record? Well, the, the Vietnam War, many more medals were awarded, say, beginning 1967, 1968, 69. Most of them were awarded in LBJ or by Nixon, uh, very few by Carter. I think Carter only awarded a couple. Uh, Reagan only awarded one. These were all from Vietnam. So, you know, it, it reaches a crescendo kind of with the, the apogee of, of a war, of a conflict. Something similar happened with uh, the global war on terror, Iraq and Afghanistan, is that it took a while for actions to be recognized as Medal of Honor worthy in those conflicts. And it, it became kind of a, a controversy for the first several years that the only Medal of Honor recipients from Afghanistan and Iraq were posthumous for several years. And it was only over the course of time that individuals were identified who were alive uh, at the time of for their award uh, from those from those wars. Like, for example, uh, Brit Slabinski, Navy SEAL, who I who I know uh, quite well, he was um, one of the first, if not the first, in terms of time of action 
to earn the Medal of Honor at the Battle of Takar Gar, March 4th, 2002. He didn't receive his medal until uh, 2015, I think it was. So, I'm sorry, 2018 is, is when he received his medal. So, you know, it, it takes a while for, for us in this country to recognize these acts. It's a process of, of the evidence coming forward, but sometimes it's people coming back and revisiting. Uh, that's mm-hmm. been true in a lot of these cases. Well, let's, let's bring the comparison in now because, um, you know, we're fortunate to have you as a guest talking about the Medal of Honor, um, but you know we're talking about the Victoria Cross and, and our highest decoration for gallantry coming from the British system, but now being uniquely Canadian, although since 1972, the uniquely Canadian VC has never been awarded. The hallmarks generally of the, the VC are uh, conspicuous bravery under enemy fire, often wounded and saving lives or materially aiding the, the achievement or the, the, the battle itself. Um, are these all the same hallmarks that are considered within the conducts uh, of the Medal of Honor? And are the two, they're the highest decoration for, you know, allied countries, but it, can we really just equate the two in, in that way or are there material differences? They're very close. I think the key with the Medal of Honor is exemplary valor, as the phrase goes, above and beyond the call of duty. That's the key, is that if you're doing your duty and you show tremendous, tremendous bravery doing something you're ordered to do, that might earn you a DSC. Uh, it might earn you a Navy Cross, but it won't earn you the Medal of Honor. The Medal of Honor has got to be something you volunteer to do that's not in the normal course of your duty. You step beyond your duty, that nobody would blame you if you did not run out under enemy fire to save your buddy because it was suicide, but you do it anyway. Um, Nobody ordered you to do it. The Victoria Cross, I I don't know that it's as specific specific about it being a voluntary act obviously the standards are very high i'm not saying the medal of honor standards are higher they're they're very similar but we've got to show that it's that it's something outside the outside the course of duty now of course with the vc you also have the the george cross uh you know, which can be outside of combat conditions but nevertheless a tremendous act of bravery we don't we don't really have an equivalent for the George cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, there are differences, but you know, the other differences that we always say you received the medal of honor, you didn't win it. <laughs> and yeah. I know that in, uh, you know, the, the British Canadian Australian culture, you, you still say one. Uh, I don't know if that goes back to the public schoolboy ethos or not, but. <laughs> well, both Dave and I were actually saying how we, we don't like, uh, we f- sometimes fall in the habit of saying one, the Victoria Cross, but it is uh, uh, your recipient, you're awarded it for tremendous valor. David, I want to get your thoughts on that because that both as a historian and as a former Black Watch officer, <laughs> above and beyond the call of duty, uh, sort of speak, that is maybe not directly stated within the, the confines of a, of a nomination for Victoria Cross, but it's kind of essential to the elements of it. Yeah, I think it's understood. I think it's implicit in it. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's held to the same sort of level when it comes to the decision-making from it, at least not from what I have seen. Um, mostly, and this is the interesting part, and I'm, and I'm not sure, Ed, whether it's the same thing. I don't believe it is with the Medal of Honor. But one of the, I'm not sure if it's the unwritten rules with the Victoria Cross, was that in the past they have denied it to people who arguably deserved it because the action which they undertook did not lead to the success of the operation. Is that something that you're also seeing or have you come across? Is it part of the parameters for the Medal of Honor? That's really interesting, David. It's, it's, it's interesting that when you talk with Medal of Honor recipients, they will say receiving the Medal of Honor is usual, almost always a sign of an operation that's gone very badly wrong. You know, I could use 
language it would be inappropriate for this forum but you know they they'll they'll use salty language to say you know an operation like snaf like snafu we won't say what it is but yeah, people yeah. know all fouled up yes. yeah so there's not there is not absolutely a sense that it had to lead to the success of the action okay. it's, it's more of a more of a personal thing really yeah, because I know, like, for instance, Aaron and I had been talking before about one, you know, a gentleman from the Black Watch, a major, young major by the name of Phil Griffin, who takes command after the commanding officer and the two IC are killed or at least knocked out. And he ends up taking the Black Watch up Verrier Ridge in Normandy in 1944, losing 94% of his soldiers um, following the orders of the Corps commander, direct orders from the Corps commander, and losing his life as well. And he was refused the Victoria Cross because he didn't reach the objective. Which is interesting because there is a comparable a year before in Tunisia, there was actually a British unit that put on this very similar attack going up a hill in Tunisia, Longstop Hill, where the uh, attack was successful. Casualties, I don't know, believe were 94%, but they were quite high. And that particular uh, battalion commander was awarded the uh, Victoria Cross specifically because he did succeed. So it seems to be much more of a determinant in the Victoria Cross culture than perhaps we have with uh, the Medal of Honor, for sure. Yeah, that is that is a significant difference. Even I was just talking about Britslavinsky Battle of Takargar. That that was by all measures a disaster. That operation was it. It clearly was not Brit's fault. Brit warned them. Uh, and wanted to take a different tactical approach to landing on that the top of that mountain. Tucker Gar was heavily fortified by the enemy. And the Americans, these several Chinooks were shot down. They were pushed off the peak. Uh, and it, it was on the day of the action, the following day was a disaster. You know, they took way more casualties than they needed to. But Brit and another guy, John Chapman, uh, earned the medals of honor and they were eventually awarded. So that's that's a clear difference. Yeah. And and I I don't want to jump on uh, my favorite Dieppe expert, uh, Professor O'Keefe. But, you know, we have a big anniversary of the Dieppe raid, which was a a major failure of the Canadian Armed Forces. Lots of debates on why. and, And we won't get into that. Read read David's book. But there were two VCs awarded at that failed raid. Uh, Cecil Merritt, uh, RMCs. I'm a graduate of our military college, Royal Military College. Our our only VC recipient was Cecil Merritt. And then our only only padre, our only chaplain, uh, Foote, uh, who who received it uh, for, for tending to the wounded on the beach and being voluntarily taken prisoner as a chaplain. Um, so they were awarded for, for a failed mission, but you know, perhaps there might have been been more. Incidentally, David. Uh, both of them became politicians after the war. Uh, so I don't know, maybe they still had shell shock from the, from the beach <laughs> and got into this crazy uh, business, but Merritt didn't like it. And foot was provincial and was minister of corrections in Ontario, but they, they were awarded uh, for, for what was viewed as a, as a wide scale failure. Well, the interesting part is, you know, the the example I just cited with Griffin, I'm not sure how much of that is really the idiosyncratic nature of this and whether it was just a question of the commander or the command team on the, on the site and up the chain of command saying that, look, we're not going to reward something that wasn't successful. Um, because certainly, as we mentioned earlier, in World War I, um, you know, the, you have uh, VCs that are given out for various things that don't have anything to do with the success or the failure of the particular mission in hand. Yeah. So, you know, so I think what we're seeing now is perhaps a maturing, uh, you know, a maturing process as we're going through and revisiting. And I think that probably gives us even more ammunition for why it is so necessary to go back and look at it. Because I think that over the course of the history of the Victoria Cross and probably, Ed, if I'm not mistaken, the the, um, Medal of Honor, um, the process has been suspect, to say the least, (laughs) over the, the early part of it. And I think now it's just a question of, you know, creating, at least for Canadians, a proper mature process to go back and not so much revise, but rather recalibrate, you know, recalibrate. 
if you talk to to Medal of Honor recipients, I think every single one of them will say that they don't feel like they did anything special and that they wear the medal in tribute to their comrades, to the guys who served with them. And they'll tell you there were they saw many guys out there in action who earned the medal but didn't receive it. So that that's something if it's true for us, it's true for you too. It's true for 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 many different nations that there are acts of valor that go unidentified, often just because they weren't recorded, because no officer advocated for them, because of just the luck of the draw. We look we've been looking for prejudice. We've been looking for racism and, and various things like that. But but really I think arguably that's a very, very small percentage of those that were earned but not awarded were actually because of some some malignant, you know, force that that prevented them from doing it. I think if you look carefully, you're going to you're going to find new evidence that should should turn up individuals who definitely earned it. Yeah, especially as historians. I mean, we know, you know, the revisionist nature of history. Um, you know, it's not static. There's always going to be something new. There's always going to be new evidence. There's going to be new interpretations. I just think it's incumbent upon us now, you know, w- with the evidence that we have at hand to be able to go back and engage in this kind of process instead of just saying, well, you know, according to historians, you know, this person deserved it and then just leave it at that. I don't understand why we should, you know, just simply leave it at the door like that. Yeah, in in well said, and in in Ed's words, I've heard veterans uh, say the same thing. I did what any of my comrades would have done in the circumstances. Uh, but in many ways, the decoration decoration is the state's way of honoring that uh, that valor, and it is a tribute to their comrades, as you said. And what's interesting about us having this discussion in Canada, Ed, is valor in the presence of the enemy is an initiative by our Afghanistan veterans and over time, many veterans associations to make sure that valor is properly recognized in the case of Private La Rochelle, because he is an example of the the tremendous valor of of the 40,000 Canadians that served in in Kabul and in Kandahar in what ended up becoming the longest single deployment of the Canadian Armed Forces. And in this case, a broken back, fractured vertebrae, a blown out eardrum, detached retina. Uh, And we now hear there was more likely 40 Taliban, not, not 20 at the time. So there's even new evidence, more people being asked to examine it. Um, What I think we need, as David said perfectly, is a recalibration, not revision, but with this new evidence, with recognizing, I think we can learn a lot from the process you have in the United States where this is not speedy, but there's a process to be followed so so that valor is almost immemorial. Yeah. You know, the process is the key. And I can say Absolutely. For those in this country who received the medal many years later than they earned it, they are totally welcomed into the Medal of Honor community. The other recipients welcome them with open arms and they are totally respected. There's no sense that, oh, well, there was some special pleading going on here or they got special attention or anything else. That's why, because the process should apply equally to everyone, because it is onerous, because it is lengthy, there's no question that those come out who come out successfully on the other end absolutely earned it. Uh, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Obviously, it uh, hasn't always been done right in this country. Some people would say Charles Lindbergh maybe didn't deserve the Medal of Honor, but he got it. Uh, you know, but but. In almost every case, it's done carefully and it's done well. Yeah, and I think that's what we're blue-skying today on the podcast is a way for us to do this, learning from our, our allies and friends in the United States, but also cognizant of the fact that United Kingdom, Australia, our other allies are mature enough now to be able to to look back to recalibrate, as David said. And I think the case of private la rochelle um is 
is the latest example, but it may allow us to have a process uh, to actually do this properly. And as a parliamentarian uh, that served in the military, I'm constantly advocating on, on veterans issues, but I would really like this to become nonpartisan in Canada because this needs to have a proper process devoid of interference. It's not about a quota system. It's not about agreeing with a, a grassroots initiative. It's about being willing to admit our systems are not perfect. And if we're really going to pay tribute to such heroism, such valor, we should we should be willing to have a process to fairly and objectively re-examine it. Right. And it should always be nonpartisan, as you say. Uh, it's It should be totally above politics. Yeah, I agree. Well, listen, um, Ed, David, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the Blue Skies Political Podcast. Uh, this is our first uh, you know, double uh, expert uh, panel that I've had on the podcast. Any final thoughts from both of you on this important topic? I think it's I think it's great uh, what you're doing and what you're what you're thinking about here, Aaron. It's it's so important to to take the extra effort to identify individuals. There really should there should be no term of limitations really on on how long ago. If you can find the evidence, if you can find the witnesses, it's it's just a matter of giving credit where credit is due. And and as you say, I think you're going about it the right way. Totally everybody from all parties should agree that this is the right thing to do. That's generally the case in this country. Uh, and I think it should be the case everywhere. So kudos to you for those. Yeah, I just want to. I just want to echo what Ed said. I mean, I you know, you think about the the men and the women who have served our country, served in the United States. I mean, part and parcel, of what they were fighting for was the reestablishment or the establishment of law and order and the rule of law, etc., and a proper process and fair, you know, a fair dealing. Um, I don't think anything is more appropriate than perhaps applying that retroactively to those. Absolutely. As you said, as Ed said, there should be no limitation period for recognizing uh, as a state such incredible valor. In fact, it serves as an inspiration long after um, the people pass. It, it is it is an important part of, of our, our democratic life as a country. And I've been so fortunate to have... Uh, an American expert talk about your process, uh, a Canadian expert talk about uh, the context in Canada. And I have to say, one of my privileges as a parliamentarian was when I was the Minister of Veterans Affairs. And in 2015, I stood in Emancipation Hall alongside uh, my counterparts in the U.S. Congress for the Congressional Gold Medal to the first Special Service Force, the Devil's Brigade. And, you know, some people have suggested Tommy Prince, uh, our most decorated Indigenous veteran, uh, you know, probably should have been recognized in a, in a more significant way during the war. But what a special opportunity for me to be joining the U.S. for that awarding of the Congressional Gold Medal for a unit where Canadians and Americans fought together. Yes, we exist up here in the, in the North. We're your important ally. We're, fro- we're forgotten a lot. But um, we, we, we share that commitment to, to freedom, to liberty, democracy, and these recipients of these awards embody that by, by going above and beyond the call of duty, by sometimes laying their life on the line for the very liberties that we enjoy. So thank you both for being part of this discussion today. Thank you. Well, listen, we've been very fortunate to have Dr. Ed Langle uh, from the National uh, Museum of the Medal of Honor in Arlington, Texas, Professor David O'Keefe, to talk about Valor in the Presence of the Enemy, a grassroots initiative from Canadian Afghanistan veterans, and the ability for Canada to look at the case of Private Jess La Rochelle in Afghanistan, but also to make sure that we have a process to ensure that Valor doesn't have a time limitation, that we're willing to look at new evidence to make sure that attitudes of the day did not prevent the state from giving Canadians, in this case, our highest decoration for valor. These are discussions that we should make sure are nonpartisan. I'm working with some other members of other parties to make sure petitions from 
valor in the presence of the enemy are presented in Parliament. And it's time for parliamentarians to come together, as they have in the U.S. Congress, to make sure that we can have a process in Canada to revisit this in a way that brings honour to the Canadian Victoria Cross. So thank you for joining the Blue Skies Political Podcast on such such an important topic. If you have any questions, if you have any suggestions or feedback, send me an email, direct message me, and share this podcast on one of your channels to make sure more Canadians can join in the conversation. I'm Member of Parliament, Aaron O'Toole. Thank you for blue skying this important political issue with us today.